4: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We're confronting, and particularly communities of color in the United States, particularly black communities in this, in this country, African-American communities, confronting some serious problems that go even beyond the obvious physical and economic challenges that have been imposed by you know, 400 years of slavery and then Jim Crow and then redlining and, you know, today just systemic structural racism, police violence, these ongoing crises. And Dr. Joy Lewis is working to do something about that. Uh, Dr. Lewis is the CEO and founder of the Healing Justice Foundation, a national nonprofit founded in Minneapolis that provides uh, community resources to address inequalities and offers urgent healing and support to African-Americans to black people. Also, the author of Healing, the Act of Radical Self Care. JOIUnlimited.com is Dr. Lewis's website. Dr. Joy Lewis, welcome to the program. Tell us about your program.
0: Sure. Hi. Thank you so much for for having me. So, yes, I am thrilled to be able to tell you about a program that we are in the middle of. We just did one of the poems yesterday, A Time of Reckoning. And we, for the time of reckoning, we have been looking at the criminal justice system and its collateral consequences, particularly its collateral consequences on the black family. And so it's one thing to sort of look at, yes, there are black bodies that have been murdered all across this country, and we're looking at the criminal justice system, but then we say, what are what are the things, uh, the collateral consequences that actually affect black families, so looking at housing looking at schools, looking at the things that keep the black family for actually flourishing. So we have been in the process for over the last year. We've had four forums and we have a policy forum that's coming up on June 23rd.
4: That's remarkable stuff. Can you share with people who might not have had the experience of being in, growing up in, living in, or even living near communities? that are experiencing these various forms of violence whether it's police violence or whether it's the economic violence that's visited upon minorities specifically and poor people more generally across the United States by our system you know by the way that the system is set up and how unwilling we have a group of politicians to even embrace simple things like you know we're the only country in the developed world that doesn't have you know paid child and family leave which is kind of I suppose way up there but uh, how for example the community where george floyd lived he gets murdered by a police officer how does the trauma of that experiencing the trauma of that you know a block from your house how does that echo into the community what does that do to people
0: well i mean i think one of the things and, and one of the reasons that i founded the healing justice foundation because it's just very glaring, you know, in other communities, often what happens is that when tragedies happen, you know, lots of support is sent in. But for Black communities, it doesn't happen like that. Whenever Black bodies are murdered, there's no Red Cross that's sent in for us, right? To the opposite, actually what happens is that what begins to happen is that there's military force that's brought in, right? Mm. That there are, we wake up, not only did we have a a tragedy that somebody was murdered a block from our house, but we wake up and instead of there being, you know, support that's brought in, that, you know, there are tanks that are here. There is tear gas that is brought in. There are more police that are brought in. And then, not only that, then there are, instead of resources being brought in, resources are cut off. So, you know, right after the murder of George Floyd, I mean, it was terrible like you know you could grocery stores shut down transportation shut down so people could not get to drug stores to get their medicine I'm talking about you know elders were at risk children were at risk could not get food so it's like basic things that people can get so you're already you know mourning the fact that somebody was murdered and you're afraid and you're scared but then just basic basic things you then we have to get together to just try to have some mutual aid to figure out how are people going to get fed? How are people going to, how are we going to make sure that children are getting basic, like Pampers? You know, how are we going to make sure that elders are getting their medicine? I mean, these are basic things. So again, instead of resources being brought in, the exact opposite is taking place. Terrible.
4: I agree. we're talking with Dr. Joy Lewis, the CEO and founder of the Healing Justice Foundation and also the author of uh, Healing, the Act of Radical Self-Care. So, Dr. Lewis, you know, what has been done? What works? What are the best practices here? And I realize this is kind of, in some ways, putting band-aids on a cancer. I mean, you know, we need a large, systemic, structural change in our society to stop these things from happening in the first place and these situations from being the reality that, you know, so many people live in. But over the short term, you know, the stuff that you're doing, what are the best practices there? What works? What can a community do to heal itself from this kind of severe trauma?
0: Well, I mean, what has to happen is that we have to make sure that the resources that actually belong to the community, you know, the resources from the taxpayers, that as the decisions are being made, whether that is at the county, the state level, you know, that these resources are actually going into the hands of community members who are making the decisions that are closest to community that are actually getting to folks who actually need it. All of these folks who are, you know, trying to make these decisions, who haven't talked to people who are on the ground, that doesn't work. People who are close to the community, who are actually, who know, like, where people live, what people need, what's actually going on, what it is that people um, need. So what we have been doing is gathering folks to get firsthand. So like yesterday, we called the Black Family Reunion, where we had elders and youth together talking about. What is it that we need to be doing? And people are brilliant about the kinds of things that should be happening in schools, the kinds of things that should be happening in neighborhoods. And we're taking these suggestions that people are saying and making sure that those things are put in the hands so they can be funded. Because what happens is you have folks who haven't talked to community who are making decisions that don't make sense for the people who things actually affect. And so the kind of mutual aid things where folks really quickly or saying oh okay these folks on this block need x y and z and we organize together to make sure that people get those things firsthand those are the things that actually work and not having people to fill out you know 20 forms before they can actually get things that they actually need
4: yeah so uh, communities caring for themselves creating community organizations like like yours is done the healing justice foundation
0: Right. And actually making sure that people are getting, you know, the resources and back to be able to get those resources and have them to be put in their hands. And I think that the other thing is, is that when folks think about healing and folks healing from trauma, you know, they think, oh, this is going to be, you know, it's not going to be a quick fix. But people know what it is that needs to happen and to talk directly to
4: the community. Is there is there a website for the Healing Justice Foundation?
0: Yes, it's HealingJusticeFoundation.org.
4: Great. Thank you. Hang on just a second here.
3: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
4: Dr. Joy Lewis, the CEO and founder of the Healing Justice Foundation, JOIunlimited.com and HealingJusticeFoundation.org. Dr. Lewis, thank you. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Amazing story over at the Washington Post today. A guy that uh, referred to himself in a group chat as Shadow Moses. His actual name is uh, Cody Richard Griggers. I'm not uh, doxing him here. It's right there in the front, you know, in in the Washington Post. And it turns out he's a Georgia sheriff's deputy. Again, quoting from the FBI documents, quote, Griggers boasted about beating a black man during an arrest threatened to falsely charge black people with felonies so that they could not vote, and advocated killing politicians and others he viewed as political enemies. He referred to beating up black people as, quote, a sweet stress relief. Welcome to America. And you think we don't all have Trump derangement syndrome? I mean... We've got some serious work to do. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Hello, Mr. Hartman.
3: Just wanted to kind of weigh in on uh, something you mentioned about this recent shooting of this gentleman in North Carolina that was shot in the back. And uh, the police promised to provide the uh, body cam footage, and then uh, it's got to be redacted. And there's a very simple remedy to this. When you are in the field and you're a police officer, you are on display all the time. Part of your job is to be present, to be obvious. The uniform itself is supposedly uh, there to deter crime. So if you know that and you are a public servant, as soon as you put that uniform on and you hit the field, that body cam should be rolling. You've got no control over it, and automatically, on a regular basis an algorithm, that body cam footage is uploaded to a government server and in real time available immediately to the public. Let me tell you something. If that type of a policy was put into place tomorrow, half of these dirty-ass cops would resign knowing that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I totally get what you're saying. I completely agree with it conceptually. There are times, though, when the police are going into a situation where... You know, it really shouldn't be public at that moment because maybe they got the wrong person or maybe it's something that might be really embarrassing to somebody, a domestic situation that turns out it was a misunderstanding or, you know, there are situations where it wouldn't be appropriate for us to all just be, you know, Truman showing in on all the cops. But a middle ground might be to do what you're saying to I mean, and and we have the technology for this. I mean, you know, Amazon Web Services, whatever. I mean, there's plenty of cloud providers out there where all the cops data is going into the cloud. And then it's not up to the local police department to release it. It's not even up to the, the local prosecutor to release it. It's up to some sort of an independent oversight board or something. What do you think of that? I'm just no. Free I, absolutely,
3: I absolutely agree with you, and and uh, I think you know. I wrote a piece over the weekend, uh, or a piece was published over the weekend about the Derek. I Cohen read it paper. on opednews.com. Yeah. And I dealt with this. And of course, there are situations, for instance, if the cop is in a specialized operation or the cop is code seven, meaning at lunch or taking care of some private matter or involved in an administrative right. function, of course not. Or something that involves minors and you don't want minors. pictured. I understand there's ways to filter this, but I mean, in principle and like you said, yeah. conceptually. What needs to happen is these folks need to know that the eyes of the public are on them, and particularly in a use-of-force incident, there should be, you know, if there is some legitimate reason for that footage, like I said, if there are children involved or minors or something like that, and there's a legitimate reason for that footage not being released to the public, I get it. But, you know, there should be like, you know, a reasonable time frame for them to buffer all of that and then release it, especially in a use of yeah. force incident.
4: Yeah. And let's get it out of the hands of the local police department and out of the hands of the local prosecutors who are often hand in glove with these folks and into some independent body. Does that make sense? Absolutely, sir. Yeah. Great. Kenyatta, always nice to hear from you. And thanks for that great op-ed you wrote over at op In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is by Frantz Fanon, and it's The Wretched of the Earth. This is from the chapter On National Culture on page 145. It sort of reads like uh, Thomas Paine, actually. Each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it in relative opacity. In the underdeveloped countries preceding generations have simultaneously resisted the insidious agenda of colonialism and paved the way for the emergence of the current struggles. Now that we are in the heat of combat, we must shed the habit of decrying the efforts of our forefathers or feigning incomprehension at their silence or passiveness. They fought as best they could with the weapons they possessed at the time, and if their struggle did not reverberate throughout the international arena, the reason should be attributed not so much to a lack of heroism, but to a fundamentally different international situation. More than one colonized subject had to say, we've had enough. More than one tribe had to rebel. More than one peasant revolt had to be quelled. More than one demonstration had to be repressed for us to stand firm, certain of our victory. For those of us who are determined to break the back of colonialism our historic mission is to authorize every revolt every desperate act and every attack aborted or drowned in blood in this chapter we'll analyze the fundamental issue of the legitimate claim to a nation the political party that mobilizes the people however is little concerned with this issue of legitimacy political parties are concerned solely with daily reality and it is in the name of this reality in the name of this immediacy which influences the present and future of men and women that they make their call to action. The political party may very well speak of the nation in emotional terms, but it is primarily interested in getting the people who are listening to understand that they must join in the struggle if they quite simply want to exist. We now know that in the first phase of the national struggle, colonialism attempts to defuse nationalist demands by manipulating economic doctrine. At the first sign of a dispute, colonialism feigns comprehension by acknowledging with ostentatious humility that the territory is suffering from serious underdevelopment that requires major social and economic reforms. And it is true that certain spectacular measures, such as the opening of work sites for the unemployed here and there, delay the formation of a national consciousness by a few years. But sooner or later, colonialism realizes it is incapable of achieving a program of socioeconomic reforms that would satisfy the aspirations of the colonized masses. Even when it comes to filling their bellies, colonialism proves to be inherently powerless. The colonial state very quickly discovers that any attempt to disarm the national parties at a purely economic level would be tantamount to practicing in the colonies what it did not want to do in its own territory. And it is no coincidence that today the doctrine of Cartierism is on the rise just about everywhere. Cartier's bitter disillusionment with France's stubborn determination to retain ties with people it will have to feed, whereas so many French citizens are in dire straits, reflects colonialism's inability to transform itself into a nonpartisan aid program. Hence, once again, no need to waste time repeating better to go hungry with dignity than to eat one's fill in slavery. On the contrary, we must persuade ourselves that colonialism is incapable of procuring for colonized people, the material conditions likely to make them forget their quest for dignity. Once colonialism is understood where its social reform tactics would lead it, back come the old reflexes of adding police reinforcements, dispatching troops, and establishing a regime of terror better suited to its interests and its psychology. Within the political parties, or rather parallel to them, we find the cultured class of colonized intellectuals. The recognition of a national culture and its right to exist represent their favorite stopping ground. Whereas the politicians integrate their action in the present, the intellectuals place themselves in the context of history. Faced with the colonized intellectuals' debunking of the colonist theory of a pre-colonial barbarism, colonialism's response is mute. It is especially mute since the ideas put forward by the young colonized intelligentsia are widely accepted by metropolitan specialists." It is in fact now commonly recognized that for several decades, numerous European researchers have widely rehabilitated African, Mexican, and Peruvian civilizations. Some have been surprised by the passion invested by the colonized intellectuals in their defense of a national culture. But those who consider this passion exaggerated are strangely apt to forget that their psyches and their egos are conveniently safeguarded by the French or German culture whose worth has been proven and which has gone unchallenged. I concede the fact that the actual existence of an Aztec civilization has done little to change the diet of today's Mexican peasant. I concede that whatever proof there is of the once mighty Songhai civilization does not change the fact that the Songhais today are undernourished, illiterate, abandoned to the skies and water, with a blank mind and glazed eyes. But as we have said on several occasions, this passionate quest for a national culture prior to the colonial era can be justified by the colonized intellectuals' shared interest in stepping back and taking a hard look at the western culture in which they risk becoming ensnared. Fully aware that they're in the process of losing themselves and consequently of being lost to their people, these men work away with raging heart and furious mind to renew contact with their people's oldest inner essence, the furthest removed from colonial times. Let us delve deeper. Perhaps this passion and this rage are nurtured, or at least guided by the secret hope of discovering beyond the pleasant wretchedness, beyond the self-hatred, something that redeems us. The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally-sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. That's 50% off your first week by using the code HARTMAN or going to cookunity.com slash HARTMAN.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best... To let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
4: And welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. It's the uh, one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. We've been talking about race in America here throughout the program. I think it's a crucial issue. Uh wanted to check in with Kimon Freeman, the program director and, and a host at We Act Radio, our Washington, D.C. affiliate, and an activist with Black Lives Matter, D.C. WeActRadio.com, of course, and the Twitter handle, at WeActRadio, at BLK Lives Matter, or at uh, Gorilla Artists, Gorilla T-I-S-T, right? Kimon, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Always a pleasure, brother Tom. Thank you. I'm curious your thoughts on the possibility that we can get through this. It it seems to me like we're almost at one of these, not almost, that that Trump, by essentially freezing or reversing, in fact, uh, the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act that made our immigration policy colorblind, and by promoting all the racial tropes and stereotypes that he did throughout the campaigns and throughout his presidency was very much trying to push America back pre-65 into be, into being a white run ethno state and i think frankly if he gets or any other republican gets the white house in 2024 that's back where we're going to go and yet the biden administration has said no we're going to embrace this 1965 to 2016 period of racial plurality in america as a activist with black lives matter what's your sense of where we're at
2: well as a student of tom hartman university i think that the whole statement of what do you call a failed coup attempt uh, a rehearsal. I think from seeing from what happened on January 6th, yeah. uh, this is America's reckoning. And uh, we have to acknowledge that this is uh, our attempt to either dismantle uh, white supremacy once for all or we're going to have a right wing uh, fascist uh, country. Uh, but Let's not forget that the Minneapolis Police Department was was burned to the ground. We had worldwide protests of another full video of a lynching. You know, state-sanctioned yep. violence. We've seen these videos before from Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, but there was something unique about this one, about the false police reports that we've all In heard reason. about. Ida B. Wells, the great lynching activist, Ida B. Wells said that those who commit the murders write the reports. Well, we all held our breaths when George a verdict because this is still America. And the first statement that the Minneapolis Police Department released about George Floyd's murder did not mention any use of force. It described, I believe, was a, a medical distress. Right. You know? And so we need to point this out because we often hear in the defense of police officers, oh, it's just a few bad apples and da-da-da-da. Well, I don't know about others, but I grew up hearing a continuation of that. It said a few bad apples spoils the whole bunch.
4: There you go. The whole barrel, yeah. Yep,
2: right. Absolutely. And so we have this, we have this new law, um, uh, I think it's from the Carroll Law, where this officer from Buffalo, uh, New York, who actually intervened, a good cop intervened in a bad cop choking someone, possibly preventing their death. And she was fired and lost her pension, and she just recently got it back. So now we, we're changing that culture of so that good cops can act. they have to have a law for good cops to actually defend innocent people from bad cops.
4: Yeah, which is an amazing thing when you think about it, that it would even be necessary. And yet, you know, I mean, I've heard people say 10% of cops are bad, 10% of cops are great, and 80% of cops are, you know, just punching the time clock and uh, not willing to make waves. And therefore, you could throw them in with the bad guys because they're facilitating them, which is 90%. I don't have any idea what the actual numbers are, and I'm not sure anybody does.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, the FBI had a 2006 report, and as you well know, the FBI is no friend of um, human rights and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and civil rights, but they even acknowledged in a 2006 report that law enforcement has been infiltrated quote-unquote by white supremacists yes and we have not done anything about that we had a 21st century police task force on, on the Obama administration did nothing about that and we need to acknowledge the reality I think that we are operating from a faulty premise that you know all cops are not bad that's that's not the premise that we should be operating from when you say when we said that FBI says law enforcement is infiltrated by white supremacists uh, you know it's like it goes back to the fact that like, Europe is not a continent that's a shock statement to people until they look at that map and realize that we all have been miseducated to arrive at a faulty conclusion because we are starting from a faulty premise. I mean, uh, many of our police departments around America are actually trained in Israel. A lot of people don't know that, mm-hmm. uh, who also has a she has a history of, of state-sanctioned violence and, and human rights violations. And these are things that we need to point out. And I think that George Floyd was possibly the starter broke the camel's back. I still don't have the reason why, because we've seen so many times that these state-sanctioned murders on camera, but I think it was because it was slow. Mm-hmm. I think that was what was different. Everything before was fast. This one was slow and excruciating, and we all kind of shared those minutes together, and I think that's what made this one different.
4: Yeah, I think you're right. It, it evoked an empathetic response uh, right across the board that, that highlighted our common humanity rather than splitting us apart. Kimone Freeman, program director, host at We Act Radio in Washington, D.C., weactradio.com, and an activist with Black Lives Matter in D.C. Kimone, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Great talking with you.
2: Thanks for the work you do. Take care. Back at you.
4: We'll be back. Pick up your phone calls and thoughts right after this. Stick around. Dave, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Watch this on YouTube. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today?
5: I'd really like to see racial equality in the United States I just question how we get there because at least 25% of Americans make less than $25,000 a year. I mean, are we supposed to just shuffle minorities out of that bracket and exchange them with – I mean, how do we get there? How do we – shouldn't the real question be –
4: How about eliminating that bracket, Dave, instead of saying moving black people out of poverty and moving white people into poverty, which is the argument, the Jews will not replace us, blacks will not replace us, of the white supremacists marching in Charlottesville. How about just eliminating that people making under 25 grand when they're working full-time category? Why not just raise the minimum wage?
5: Well, I agree with that, and I I think the better path to that is having guaranteed... It's having the government step in, give guaranteed jobs, and have floor wages. My question is, is how are we supposed to fight for equality, uh, racial or otherwise, yeah. when so many people are making so little money?
4: I see this as a multi-dimensional problem. Number one, we need to be teaching the actual history of the United States so that our young people growing up actually have a clear-eyed understanding of where we came from and how we got here. And then number two, we need to deal with how we got here, with where we're at right now which is where the average black family in America has family wealth of less than $5,000. The average white family in America has family wealth of over $100,000. Minorities and women make less than white men do, you know, just right across the board. that There are entire categories of economic opportunity that people are largely blocked out of due to race or gender. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of these issues that I think are all interrelated. And the way that we do policing in this country with regard to race is absurd so we need to we need to pass the george floyd justice and policing act we need to we need to rebuild america from the from the bottom up in a way that includes everybody we need to build back better to use joe biden's phrase and we need to be looking at ways to undo the harm of 400 years of, of stealing the labor and wealth of an entire group of people based on their race or based on their national origin originally and, and their race as well people who were stolen from africa taken out of africa and brought here against their will and impressed into slavery forced into slavery
5: on protest and say i want equality for minorities you can't have it in a system where people are making so little i don't agree with the minimum wage i think that government should guarantee work and try to make it more meaningful eighty percent of the people have anxiety because they don't their jobs have no meaning so i think we should have a floor wage Established by the government
4: and do away with the minimum wage. Yeah. Or anybody... Well, I, yeah, I, okay. <laughs> you know, I think you're, it's a semantic argument, Dave. And by the way, the last study I saw was that uh, a little over half of Americans find meaning in their work. So I think your 80% number is off. But, you know, uh, double-check it on the Internet. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hermit King, The Dangerous Game of Kim Jong-un by Chung Min Lee. This is from the first chapter, Life in Earth's Paradise. Whenever a North Korean is asked by a foreign journalist or visitor what life is like inside North Korea, the reply is that the country's citizens live in an earthly paradise for one reason, the care given to them by the Supreme Leader. He is their father and provider. They lack for nothing, nor do they desire anything else. The supreme leader makes sure that they are totally happy. Just like the Heavenly Father in Christianity, it is the living head of the Kim family that makes everything possible in North Korea. This is a total lie. Except for the super elites, who are bound inextricably with the regime, including the creme de la creme of the party, armed forces, security agencies, and hard currency-making enterprises, the vast majority of North Koreans must fend for themselves. Life was not always like this in North Korea. While well, it's impossible to imagine today, North Korea had a higher GDP than South Korea until the early 1970s. In 2017, South Korea's GDP was $1.5 trillion, whereas North Korea's was $33 billion. Per capita GDP was $30,000 in South Korea, $1,300 in North Korea. Still, North Koreans are routinely told that South Korea is filled with beggars and only a tiny percentage of corrupt capitalists live well. The rest of the population ekes out the barest of livings in squalid conditions. Because the country is a stooge of the American imperialists, South Korean women are constantly raped by American soldiers, Pyongyang's propagandist claim, and the people are yearning for liberation by North Korea. Even the government-funded Russian international television network RT, which has prided itself as a mouthpiece of the Putin regime, believes that North Korean propaganda has gone a step too far. A 2017 RT documentary called The Happiest People on Earth, North Korea, The Rulers, the People, and the Official Narrative, offers the outside world a peek into that nation. A factory manager recounts her emotions when Kim Jong-un made an on-site inspection visit in January 2016. Quote, "...when the great Marshal Kim Jong-un opened the windows and walked in, we beheld his sun-like image. It was like a dream, as if I was the only one who enjoyed this great honor." She continues with straight face, the entire factory and workshop filled with sunlight when the great marshal arrived. The film crew captures a scene of students studying in the famous Kim Chak University of Technology. Since most North Korean men have to spend 10 years in the army before they can enroll at a university, male students at Kim Chak are typically in their late 20s or early 30s. One student says, thanks to the great leader in the marshal general's revolutionary course, our country became the strongest country in the world. With a big smile, the student goes on to say, all stooges who dare attack our sovereignty are our enemies. Each year, the nation busies itself preparing for the celebration of Kim Il-sung's birthday on April 15th, called the Day of the Sun. The film crew captured citizens gathering in a plaza to pledge their loyalty to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. After they take their vows, first grade children goose-step to martial music, and the child leading the formation raises her right arm in a 45-degree salute, just like the goose-stepping members of the armed forces. A middle school orphanage official tells the film crew that the great Marshal Kim Jong-un spent two hours visiting the school. In the entrance, you see a giant mural depicting the floor plan of the orphanage. The point where Kim began his inspection is marked with a red star, and his footsteps are marked in red arrows. The entire room is devoted to pictures and relics of his visit. The red and yellow blanket that Kim touched, and the white chair with the blue cushion he sat in, are boxed in glass. Everything he touches is preserved as a holy remnant, just as was done with anything his father or grandfather touched. This is how the state wants to portray the average North Korean, filled with undying love for the Kim family, finding truth only in the teachings of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, and receiving guidance in everything from the current Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-un. The truth is, every North Korean has an avatar, because how the avatar behaves can mean the difference between life and death. The avatar is for public consumption, what is shown to most friends, relatives, and co-workers. A North Korean can show his or her innermost secrets to just a handful of people, perhaps immediate family members, trustworthy relatives, and best friends who have committed a common crime like watching a South Korean movie. The dark side of North Korea, the state argues, is simply fake news conjured up by the capitalist West and enemies of the state. But right beneath the veneer of 25 million smiling North Koreans lies a darkness that fills every square meter of the DPRK. There are at least four gulags in North Korea where between 200 and 300,000 political prisoners and their families are held. Officially, the state says there are no political prisoners Moi Moishol was a guard in Camp 22, no longer in operation, and one of the few guards who escaped to South Korea. He was trained to see prisoners not as human beings, but as animals. In fact, prisoners got smaller rations than the dogs reared by guards. Prisoners shouldn't make eye contact with instructors, recalls on. The book, The Hermit King, by Chung Min Lee. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Federal officials are going after the people who killed, is it Ahmed Aubrey? I may be remembering his name wrong. The fellow down in Georgia where the three white guys basically hunted him with a pickup truck and killed him. The feds are saying that his civil rights were violated, specifically a civil right to live. So, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. Anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Cindy in Houston, Texas. Hey, Cindy, what's on your mind?
1: hello there i just wanted to make a comment and reference to the other gentleman that was just on the line just a few minutes ago I'm trying to make this as quick as i can um one of th- with him um and i'm not saying that he's a bad person because i don't know him and he he is so don't get me wrong and what i want to say is just that listening to him i can see a part of our problem as a country for example i am not black i'm a white woman and I've had some very good jobs, which has you know, been a very big blessing for me and my family. But at the same time, I, you know, when he says that, oh, a racism, he doesn't see racism as a problem or that it does exist in the same way that I see it. Racism does exist. I think the problem is that certain people, and they're not bad for it, they just are not able to pass their viewpoint. Like for example, well, I'm an engineer, I work in this company, and so he is black, And so he has a good job, so racism does not exist because he was able to get that position. So if he can get that position, any person out there, black, can get that same position. And I feel like that is a main problem. I feel like there are so many people that are not bad people, but they just cannot put themselves past this small little mental block to look further, to say, oh my God, Racism is real. You mean to tell me that if you're black, you may get shot by a cop, and you may end up dead within five to seven to ten minutes. It, it, it's it's just his... Exactly. And his phone call really triggered me a little bit, because with, with what he said is what we need to fix. I think there are so many people out there but if they realize that just because you were blessed enough, to become a director or a you know a manager at a certain company and you happen to be black doesn't mean that those same when you were able to get that done doesn't mean that that so many people out there have that opportunity you know it's kind of like pull yourself by your own bootstraps and racism does not exist and and you can get it done but the fact is racism does exist and if people would look past their small little viewpoint just because they may have a good place they may have good cars they may have a good job, doesn't mean that it's not real.
4: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that that there's a subtle distinction that is being lost in this whole conversation, and and, and I certainly didn't do it justice in in my rant. And that is that there's a difference between a nation being founded in racism, which ours was, a nation declaring itself to be to have racism as its fundamental principle as germany did in the 1930s and early 40s when they said basically we're here for white aryan people and everybody else is not us and should be expelled or exterminated number two which is kind of the Mm -hmm. the, you know the 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 next part of that extreme and then Mm -hmm. number three Um, which I think is probably more true of America now, and I think it's what he was trying to say, which is you can have a country that is founded in racism and that has even throughout part of its history um, taken kind of the German position of we're a country of, by and for one particular race, and everybody else is is, you know a second-class citizen. But we are trying to leave that behind now. To a large extent, we have in many ways... To a large extent, we have not in many ways. We have to address those one at a time, particularly the larger systemic pieces of it, but also the social pieces of it, which I think follow along with things like, you know, seeing people in the media portrayed in a favorable light who, you know, who uh, 30 years ago weren't, you know. 30 years ago, African-Americans <laughs> and and uh, brown people were in the media always as villains or as buffoons. Now they're heroes. Now they're doctors. Now they're lawyers. Now, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. That, that all of these things are real, but that the United States, there is a faction within the United States. And this, this, is, this is such an important point, Cindy. There is a faction in the United States. You've got like the Boogaloo Boys. They, they openly, openly say that what they're about is creating a white-black race war. You've got uh, a whole bunch of people affiliated with them, going back to Tim McVeigh, who read these books, you know, The Camp of the Saints and The Turner Diaries, the, the two major books that are novels that are that are read by people in this movement, that mm-hmm. believe in a white-only nation, and everybody else literally should be exterminated or expelled or destroyed. But that is not the official position of the nation. That is not even the official position of a sizable minority of the nation that is the official position of a of a noticeable minor a small minority of the nation and we have to deal with that and i think when joe biden said you know the number one terrorist threat is white supremacist terror he went a, a big direction you know kamala harris was asked is america a racist nation and she said no but there's racism here and we've got to deal with it so i think that she's addressing that that kind of nuance that i'm i'm trying to talk about here cindy
1: Right, exactly, and the thing is is that so many people need to realize I think that once there's certain people out there that honestly cannot see they cannot see it, and that's because they're not they're not they're not sitting down and looking at it and and saying that was wrong you know this what happened at this at the state. i mean it's just to me it's unbelievable what's happening in our country, and it really does hurt, and so you know. Our our foundation, who we are supposed to be, is all of us. And how are we supposed to be strong? And it's through that diversity. And Mm -hmm. that diversity is amazing. You know, it's it's just so amazing. It's just so sad to see what's happening in our country. And I think that I think also I think that when something does happen, I think that it needs to be every race and color there to make sure that we're all signing up for what is occurring. Because what I'm happens with you. is people, and,
4: don't, and, people don't realize and, and that our,
1: next.
4: Yeah, and that's our ideal. But when you look at, for example, India right now, where Indira Modi is aggressively trashing Muslims. I mean, he's trying to create oh, a race yes. war in India. Yes. Where you look at, yes. if you look at yes, uh, 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 Myanmar, where they are aggressively committing genocide against the rohingya because they are racially different and religiously different if you look at china where in that that part of china where the uh uh, the uyghurs live um they have locked it down they're creating so-called re-education camps you know a giant prison camp for like a million people um, those are examples of a nation that is explicitly being racist, openly being racist. We're, you could argue that there are large chunks of America that are still like that. I mean, if you look at the prison systems down south and who it is who gets incarcerated and how they get incarcerated and what these conditions of incarceration are and how they lose their right to vote, and etc., I think you could say that uh, America is a racist nation, at least in those instances. Mm -hmm. But it's Mm -hmm. no longer like it was in the 1920s when you had uh, President uh, Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, actively promoting eugenics, talking about racial purity, screening Birth of a Nation at the White House, you know, the the recruiting film for the Klan. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I think that um, not, you know, and I realize I'm kind of taking a shot in my own foot here. I'm taking a shot at my own piece saying that, you know, uh, how dare you say we're not a racist nation, Tim Scott, here's all the proof. But, but I think that increasingly we are not. It's just that we have a hell of a long way to go. And the problem that I have with Tim Scott and the Republicans who are echoing him and who are pointing to him and saying, see, he's our guy, he's saying it, is that they're trying to pretend that there's no way to go. There's there's no steps to take, that there's no problem that has to be purged, that there's no movement within largely the Republican Party, but also outside of the Republican Party to the right of the Republican Party. that openly wants America to be racist. Now, you know, uh, Marjorie Trader Greene the other day talking about you know, creating a caucus in Congress of Anglo-Saxon values. We all know what mm-hmm. that means, right? White people mm-hmm. from Europe. Of course we do. In fact, you know, exactly. from England. And, and Tom, so we don't want it to happen. We don't want to be that.
1: We, we, we want to make sure that when we see these little things happening, this is happening, oh, that's happening, oh, that's happening. We need to make sure we're on top of it. We need to make sure that we are no. there to counteract it
4: yeah yeah i'm with you i'm with you and and you know it's just step by step we've got but but i think awareness you know awoke oh, awoken, it word. Word. <laughs> yeah awareness is the is the beginning cindy thank you for the call it's great to hear from you and thank you for watching us there in houston texas we will be back with more of your calls right after this netsuite.com/hartman That's netsuite.com/hartman
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
4: Tom Harbin here with you and, uh, Gene in Abilene, Texas. Hey Gene, what's on your mind?
6: I'm an 81 year old black man, retired from the military 20 years in the Air Force, Vietnam veteran, and, uh, I want you to consider racism and Christianity and the uh, effect that it had on slavery in the United States of America. I ordered a Bible. It is the King James Version of the original African Heritage Bible. And the only place that I could find this Bible was on Amazon. All the places you can buy Bibles in Abilene, you cannot buy this Bible in Abilene, Texas. What do you think of that?
4: I don't know about that Bible, Gene. Can you tell me something? I I know what the King James Version is, but I didn't know that there was an African version of that. Do you mean in another language, or do you mean that it has been basically reinterpreted?
6: It is in the English language, and let's see here. It was... uh, the general editor is Kane Hope Felder, Ph.D. Uh-huh. He is the professor of the New Testament Languages and Literature, Howard University, Washington, D.C.
4: Huh. Yeah, coming out of Howard, it's probably pretty solid stuff. I don't know. I, I, I do know that Christianity has been used to justify slavery for thousands of years. It was used to justify the enslavement of Africans and Native Americans in the United States, principally Africans. You know, the whole Mark of Cain thing was, you know, adopted and held by the Mormon church up until the mid 1980s, as I recall, maybe the late 1970s. The whole, uh, you know, just go back to picking cotton and Jesus will be fine with you when you die. Stuff was, you know, a big deal back in the day. There are those who argue that Christianity was a very handy tool a slave-holding class in the United States at one point in time. Um, Is that where you're going with this, Gene, or is it that a Bible that has an African-American, what, interpretation, subtext, commentary on the Bible is generally unavailable?
6: No, it's all in English. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's just amazing that nobody is familiar with this. And as many books as you've got, and you author it like that, I would expect this book to be familiar with it.
4: I will look for it. Gene, give me the title again.
6: It is the Original African Heritage Edition of the Holy Bible,
4: the King James Version. Okay, the African Heritage Edition. Gene, I'll look for it. Gene, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Stephen in Monroe, North Carolina. Hey, Stephen, what's up? HB 3979.
5: Okay. And. Tell me whether, and they can tell you whether I'm lying when the first three concepts that's banned are one, one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Two, an individual, by virtue of the individual's race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. And three, an individual should should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partially because of the individual's race. So effect. all three I of those statements that you just
4: said that they can't discuss in a classroom, Stephen, all three of those statements are the predicating assumptions of the behavior of this country for 200 and some odd years. And you're saying that this Texas law says that those things may not be discussed in a classroom. Do I have that right?
5: Well, it says that cannot require or make part of a course
4: Right, so you may you may not discuss in a classroom the fact that white people in this country for 240 years thought they were the 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 superior no, race and can't. and put it into law
5: earlier in the bill. Earlier in the bill, it says a teacher may not be compelled to discuss current yeah. events or widely debated. Okay. Currently controversial. Stephen, we're splitting and hairs, and as I said, I, I
4: you know I have not read the law, so I'm 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 just gonna put an end to this conversation right now, and we can pick it up maybe. Uh, a little later in the week or next week but i will i will go out of my way now thank you steven for that to track down that texas legislation and read it uh kusai in campo california hey kusai what's up
5: how you doing Good. um just wanted to point out that the pretty much the core of racism began with the religion itself uh, i don't mean to make light of it but god everywhere he went he told them they're his favorite they're his favorite they're his favorite so The religion started out by being already superior to the
4: other guys. And that's true of almost every religion, and not just religion, religion, by the way, cultures. I mean, when you go back and you look at the creation stories of Native peoples all over the world, every single tribe, every single group, every single community, every single religion, you know, when you get down to a group of people who share a common creation story, the first person was always them. Right, the first Absolutely. person on Earth, just like you know, just like in Genesis, the first person uh, happens to be Jewish. And by the way, there's this uh, you know when they expelled Cain after he killed Abel, when they expelled Cain from town, he went off and married a woman from the next town over. So wait a minute, yeah, yeah. whose creation <laughs> yeah. story is this, really? Yeah, yeah no, I, then, I, I get when your when point.
5: Politics, yeah, and then when politics became the norm, everybody politicized the religions and like oh, right. the way they refer to the Eastern problem, it's not a Muslim Jew issue at all but that's the best way to present it for all the powers that are going to benefit
4: from it yeah yeah, yeah. i anyway, think i think point. you're absolutely right thank you kusai jerry in Kissimmee, florida hey jerry what's up
7: hey tom i'm a retired educator and i know the gentleman was just talking about the bill in texas mm-hmm. uh i don't know, have the facts on which states but this is based on what i've read as an article as a synopsis one of the states it could be iowa if a teacher teaches it, because one of the callers was saying, well, teachers can just go and teach this, you'll be fired. And another state, it could be Texas, there's a $5,000 fine to teachers who uh, would teach uh, not only critical race theory, but going off on another area, like which is actually in the bill. So as an example, back to when I was teaching, if, someone, if a student brought up, let's say a middle school, oh, well, I just don't really understand why blacks had to go to the back of the bus, what was the reason for this and you're trying to explain to them putting in the context of time so they could understand it this is the way the country were was white people had these rights from voting to having a job everything that's going to be considered teaching racism against white people which is ridiculous how can you happen you teach the, the american history it's impossible
4: yeah. well and i think that that's the point uh you know i mean why why it, does Texas have such a problem with public school teachers teaching their children that whites are the superior race, that they need to pass a law to stop it? I don't think so. But they apparently have a problem, the Republican legislators in Texas apparently have a problem with students being taught in Texas that for most of the history of the United States, you know that was taught, number one, in our schools, and, and number two, that white people believed that and based a government and, a, and an economic system on it. I mean, you know, yeah, Jerry, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Like I said, I got to read the law, and I will do so. And it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today I'm reading from The Prophet's Way, a guide to living in the now. It's actually a compilation of diaries and letters that I sent to friends on travels around the world, and it's kind of an autobiography, I suppose, of sorts. This is from Life in a Teepee*. It's on page 25, and it starts with a quote from Lenny Bruce. Every day, people are straying away from the church and going back to God. My best friend through school was Clark Stinson. We met when we were 13, and instead of pursuing the normal pastimes of teenagers, we spent our time studying Sanskrit. We had an old study guide book I found in my father's library, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and arguing minutia from the Bible. Clark's mother was interested in metaphysics and shared a book called Autobiography of a Yogi with us. Years later, when I went to Detroit with her and Clark to attend an initiation in Kriya Yoga by Yoga Oliver Black, the oldest living disciple of Yogananda, I recognized Yogananda's Kriya technique as identical to an ancient Coptic exercise Master Stanley had taught us years earlier called the Cobra Breath. I introduced Clark to Master Stanley and Lee, and Clark and I began a serious study of spirituality. We were both in our late teens by then, and Clark had recently married. I was recovering from a painful breakup with a girlfriend, and we agreed that to do our spiritual work best, we should seek isolation. So Clark and his wife bought a teepee, and I bought one, and we three gave away everything else we owned in the world, except some clothes and our spiritual books. We bought 100 pounds of wheat, 100 pounds of dried fruits, some basic camping equipment, and got a ride into up into Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where an old trapper led us on a three-day trek back into the Chippewa National Forest to a small lake that isn't on most maps. We spent the summer there, Clark and his wife on one side of the lake, me on the other. Three days a week we practiced silence and did meditation and prayer every day for hours. I had a pet tachnid fly, a small insect that looks like a honeybee but is actually a fly. When I'd meditate in the morning on my blanket outside my teepee, he'd come and hover just over my right hand as if he were drawing nourishment from me. Sometimes he'd hover there for as much as 20 minutes. Occasionally he'd land and walk around with careful steps like an astronaut exploring a distant but friendly planet. I also shared my teepee with a large and furry brown and black wolf spider who came out at night as the sun set and picked the sleeping mosquitoes off the canvas on the west side of my teepee. I watched the play of Life and Death, Predator and Prey. Here's an odd synchronicity that Carl Jung would have appreciated. I haven't seen a tagnid fly for years, but as I'm typing these words into a laptop computer on my back porch in Atlanta, one just hovered over my left hand for a few moments and then landed. He's here with me as I'm sitting... As I'm typing, sitting on my hand. One cold and rainy afternoon, Clark and I were walking through the woods looking for berries and edible plants. We'd gotten pretty skilled at identifying what was safe and what wasn't, and we're filling a bag with leaves and fruits. This must be what our ancestors lived like, Clark observed, hunting and gathering. Except we're vegetarians, we're just gathering, I said, joking. But to Clark, it wasn't a joke. Seriously, what we call civilization started when humans started farming. But humans like us were around for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before that, fully conscious, awake, aware, thinking and feeling just like us. But they were hunter and gatherers instead of farmers. I said, without agriculture, there'd be no civilization. It was an interesting thought. Remember Miss Hammer, Clark said? Miss Hammer had been our eighth grade biology teacher and one of the best teachers I'd ever known in my life. Clark and I had conspired to make her life difficult, but we also loved her and learned more from her each month from any of our other teachers in a year and she was a huge fan of margaret mead clark said she said that in primitive societies there isn't suicide depression drug addiction all that stuff the noble savage i said shivering i'm skeptical and cold and the indians who lived here once were probably cold too he shrugged and said this life seems much more natural to me at least i had to agree with that a few days later, Clark came running over to my TV with his Bible, all excited. "Look at this," he said, pointing to Genesis 4:2. "It says Cain was a tiller of the ground. The Bible is talking about how the first murderer was also the first farmer. And in the 25th verse, it makes it clear that Abel, the brother who was not the farmer, was the one who loved God the most. So what?" I said. "It's a classic archetype of the oldest child being the most beloved, but also the one who screws up. It's all over, from Greek mythology to Shakespeare." don't you see clark said adam and eve were gatherers like we are now they walked around the garden of eden and picked up food but then they tasted of the knowledge of good and evil of life and death that's your food supply you live or die by it when you live as a gatherer you live by a whim of nature if there's no food you die when you begin to store up food you can defy nature and survive a drought you then have the power to control life the knowledge of life or death or good and evil So, the tasting of the apple must have meant that Adam and Eve experimented with agriculture, and in doing so, they defied the God of nature. It's a warning. It's saying that the primitive life of hunting, gathering, and herding was more in accord with nature's way than is agriculture. Clark dove deep into the issue, but I didn't consider it all that important at the time. I couldn't see how when people started farming after the end of the Ice Age, it had been such a bad thing. After all, it brought us modern society and science. Clark, however, was totally certain. Agriculture and what he called the organized ones were responsible for the coming death of the earth. The book, The Prophet's Way.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.